my name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. Walking with a limp like, will I ever run? Once again, or is this it? Am I forever done? Living in the hospital was never fun. Some people were cool, but not everyone. Welcome, everybody. It's time for another Hollywood Godfather podcast. And again, we have an amazing show with two gentlemen that are more educated than I could even think about with a topic that is so close to me. I, I can't believe that they finally did something like this. But before we get into that, being that we only have one lady with us, we will introduce the lady first, Julia, our co-host, and our Millennium, who is the eyes and ears of that whole entourage out there. <laughs> Pat Piccarelli, my co-writer and friend. And uh, Pat, I'll let you do the honors of introducing our guest today, please. Hey, uh, good evening, everybody, or whatever time it is you're listening to this. Uh, since the Godfather book and movie came out, the, the book in the late 60s and the uh, the movie in 72, uh, it is arguably uh, the, the, uh, one of the best movies ever made or the best movie ever made. There have been books about the book, books about the movie, the making of The Godfather. Uh, there have been... Uh, uh, there are podcasts, uh, in fact, two of the actors who were uh, featured in uh, The Sopranos uh, are doing a, a Godfather podcast. Other people are doing Godfather podcasts relating to the movie. Uh, there's a book just came out, uh, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, about The Godfather. There was a 10-part miniseries uh, uh, on uh, cable that is uh, still on. It, was, uh, it came out last year. That's that's all about the film. Uh, it's it's always in the news. Uh, fifty five years later, uh, was it fifty three years later? Whatever it is, fifty two years later. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm dyslexic. Forgive me. Anyway, a long time ago. Today, <laughs> we're going to talk about something that we don't believe has ever been discussed, or there's ever been a book about, and it's uh, uh, it's uh, written in part and edited by. Our guest, uh, Richard Green, who's a uh, teacher of philosophy at the Weber State University in Utah, and Joshua Heater, who teaches philosophy at Jefferson College in Missouri. How you doing, guys? Great. Thanks for having us. Doing oh, great. Happy to be here. Oh, great. Well, I'm interested to hear what you're going to say about this. It has been my life for the past 52 years. It's amazing. Uh, the... Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, the description of the book on Amazon, and uh, there are there are 28 chapters. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, yeah, there are there are 28 chapters in the book dealing with the uh, uh, coming at the uh, the movie and the book philosophically. Uh, it's uh, it covers the gamut. We don't want to run through everything that's about. That's what we have guests for. But this is something that we've never done before, and we're just as excited to uh, listen to these these two learned gentlemen as our listeners are. So uh, whoever lost the coin toss uh, <laughs> between you guys, can you tell us how did this idea germinate? Uh, are you guys fans or how did this start? Yeah, we'll so had to have lost the coin toss because it was his idea. So, yeah, so, so <laughs> I, I, I lose by, uh, yeah, by fiat. So 
both Richard and I have done a few of these types of books before. We worked previously on a book on Westworld, the movie and TV show, some of the philosophical ideas that come on that. Um, Rich has done many more than, than I have. I recently did one on Better Call Saul. And I was sitting, sitting down one night, like in the fall of 2021, and I sort of realized, you know, it feels like we're running out of intellectual property to do these books about because, uh, you know, there's so much new content out there with all the streaming services um, that there's very few things that get like everybody watching them because everybody has their own little TV show. They binge it for like 10, 10 weeks and then they forget about it. And it, there are fewer and fewer of these big franchise movies to write a, a philosophy book about. And so I, I just started wondering, are there any from like the late 20th century or from the early 21st century that never got a book that never got a, a popular culture or philosophy book? And lo and behold, Nobody did The Godfather. And so like, well, we got to do that. that. That's awesome. So we we pitched the idea. We had to be a little persistent because, you know, it is a little bit, even it's beloved and, you know, it has this huge audience. Um, it is, uh, you know, nothing new has come out um, from the, the Godfather folks in a while. Um, so we pitched that idea and uh, we did get the green light and it's been a great process. We had, I can't remember how many submissions for chapters but, you know, many more than we could have fit in the book. Uh, you know, it's a testament to how many, uh, you know, thoughtful um, philosophy type people just love the Godfather and have something to say about it. Yeah. So we were just flooded with submissions and we got to pick out the best 28. And yeah, um, we're really happy with how the project turned out. Uh, when does the book come out? What's, what's, what's the name of the book? When does it come out? Is it available for pre-order? Tell the audience. Yep, uh, book comes is officially released ju July 25th, but it is currently available for pre-order at all the normal places, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. The official title of the book is um, The Godfather and Philosophy, An Argument You Can't Refute. So I like it. If you've seen the offer or the offer and you've seen what's gone on behind the scenes, um, getting the Godfather made. We went through exactly that to get that subtitle, um, <laughs> which ended up being a compromise from a longer subtitle that Josh and I liked um, and a very different one that the publisher liked. So, um, Well, that's funny that you should mention the offer because you can imagine me reflecting on the offer now 50 years later, and they really bastardized me in that <laughs> offer. I can't believe it, especially episode eight. But fortunately, I had my my day in court and uh that was all resolved fortunately because i didn't want my legacy to go down as they portrayed me in it yeah yeah uh, they corrected it so that that's good but yeah, that, me, yeah, i'm sorry it was fun to watch the opera but it, it you know the the way it played it didn't seem like very much of it was going to be very accurate right there's a lot of sort of hollywood style yeah, hyperbole, it, you know? it was entertainment yeah yeah and they, they, they left out the good parts for fear that they may get some uh, some uh, kickback. The, the, the mob, specifically uh, Joe Colombo, had everything to do with the making of that picture. I mean, he was in it, but it, they, they made him out to look like a bumbling fool, which he was not. I he couldn't believe it, Rabisi being a thespian that he is after reading it and doing research on who Joe Colombo was. Joe Colombo was a very educated guy, very smart, and a legitimate multimillionaire in real estate. 
And they had him like he's some kind of guy on the corner sitting in front of a clubhouse. But uh, anyway. Well, that's I guess that's what the audience audience expected. But anyway, how do you how do you formulate this? As you said, you had a lot of people submitting chapters or chapter ideas. Uh, You picked out what you wanted to pick out. Where do we start? What's the first chapter? What is it about? Break it down. let us know how it relates to the, uh, uh, the the philosophy that you were looking for. Yeah, so as Josh mentioned, we we got a lot of submissions, right? So you know, normally for these things, you want fifteen to twenty five or so chapters, and you you may get thirty to choose from. And we had over eighty, so it was it was an embarrassment of riches. Um, so as we go through it, we, you know, we sort of think about philosophy very broadly. Um, you know, when we teach philosophy to our introductory students, we, um, you know, at least I do, Josh, I'm, I'm not sure, tend to carve it up into sort of broad areas. Um, you know, metaphysics, the theory of knowledge, um, value theory, you know, logic, things like that. Um, and so I always sort of think about, you know, do we have things to cover all those areas within the discipline of philosophy? And with the Godfather, you sort of don't, right? Um, it winds up being very lopsided on the ethics, political philosophy side of things, right? So there's there's a ton of great papers about, um, you know, what sort of leader are the the two dons, you know, um, Vito and Michael? Um, are they wise? Are they virtuous? Are they just? Um, what role does family play, right? And you don't have these sort of trippy metaphysical issues like you might have in something like Inception, you know, is reality not as it seems? So, so we start with a lot of really great submissions and think what needs to be said about this. And for example, the, the chapter that Josh wrote um, ended up being a chapter that we thought needed to be in there and we didn't get a submission on it. So Josh said, okay, I'll, I'll take this one. Um, Can I ask you a question? Who, did, who submitted these? Were they philosophers or just fans? Um, philosophers. So we, uh, we ha- uh, have a process where we'll send out a call for abstracts with, you know, people just send us, Hey, I could write a, a paper on this. And we have some email lists and we send it out to different philosophy departments. So uh, I'm pretty sure everybody in who's written a chapter has some sort of credential, either a master's degree or a PhD, or they teach philosophy. Um, um, so everybody is obviously a big uh, fan of the franchise, but they also, they've spent some time thinking about philosophy and writing philosophy um, all, you know, uh, accomplished people. Yeah. Did you have any for our audience to know that, you know, the professional people did this. Yeah. Did you have any uh, input as to topics? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, so, so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll sort of like brainstorm chapter ideas and, uh, and like, Oh, here's a chapter we can have. And then we'll, we'll add that to the, the call for submissions um, but I'll, one of the fun things about doing a chapter like or doing a book like this is sometimes people send a submission in and we hadn't really thought of that idea as a chapter. And then that's, you know, that becomes a, a great chapter. So one of the chapters um, that I don't think uh, Richard and I had really talked about, but we got a really good uh, uh, submission and the chapter ended up being really good um, is by a philosopher named uh, Jennifer Kling. She writes a, a chapter about what really is the difference between, say, um, uh, a family and the government, right? So you have that famous line from Michael in the first movie, 
uh, or that the, the his um, interaction with Kay, where uh, Kay says, "Well, Michael, you know, senators and presidents don't have men killed." And Michael says, oh, well, now who's being naive? And so uh, we hadn't really thought of this idea for a chapter, but we got this great submission. What is the difference between a government and, um, a, a, you know, a, a government's worse? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's a point, though, right? I mean, she she argues that that they rule New York, right? The, the five dons. Um, and so then the question is, is their rule any less just than the government's claim, you know, to it? And, and Shari's not really, you know. Well, the, you know, uh, governments allegedly uh, rule by the by the rule of law, but history tells us that that's not necessarily true. Uh, but uh, since it is the government, they tend to get away with it. And if it's an organized crime family, of course, the government is after that family. But yeah. I, truthfully, I agree with you. I don't see much of a difference. I mean, the politicians are going to politicians are going to prison all the time. I mean, this is this isn't rare. Uh, you know, it's, uh, how did how did the author of that chapter handle that? What what, what do you have to say? Well, uh, she right it was a yeah, she. Yeah, Jennifer. 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 She. she um, I mean, the, the paper is uh, interesting in that um, she sort of takes it like objection by objection, like, well, here's why they're different. And then she answers that objection. Here's what, so for instance, like, well, we vote for the leaders of the government. We don't vote for, um, you know, who's the head of the family who rules New York. And while that's true, she does sort of point out like, but society does kind of go along with it and sort of play along with, and, uh, you know, who the, the mafia family that's in charge. And if they really wanted to, as a society, they could fight back and they could probably overthrow the mafia, but they sort of, they sort of, they're a little bit complicit. They go along with it. Um, another objection that, uh, you know, she, she raises that she answers is, uh, yeah, but the mafia uses violence and, you know, well, it, you know, not to get too libertarian or anything, but it is a fact that if you stop paying your taxes sooner or later, men with guns will come to your door and ask you about those taxes, right? And so there are all these sort of interesting parallels. You know, can I say that I think that there's no difference? I'm not sure if I'm I'm that persuaded, but there are a lot of really non-trivial parallels you have, you could you would, would at least say between you know a mafia-style family and the government that should not be taken lightly. Yeah, there's a, there's a further consideration in that chapter too, um, which is you know when when she assesses where the mob is and where the government is, um, neither lives up to the ideal, right? So the, the payoff is is not that that the government's as bad as the mafia, so much as the government doesn't need to be as, you know, as bad as mafia. The mafia, yeah, the five dons don't have a super strong claim um, to, you know, being legitimate rulers. Neither does the government, but the government's in a position to clean it up. And then she gets sort of prescriptive and says, you know, if they were to do the following sorts of things, um, basically stopping most of the nonsense. Well, um, the, main the, the, the main difference being the government has checks and balances. Uh, the mafia doesn't. It's a hierarchical organization. The guy at the top rules for as long as he can. And we know by looking at history, uh, you, you want to take out a boss, you can do it even without uh, having the hit being sanctioned. Paul Castellano 
being a, a perfect example. So the leadership is always tenuous. Mm-hmm. You know, there, it, it isn't like the government. You vote. Uh, somebody wants to pass a bill. Both houses have to approve. President has to sign. He can get overridden. But as far as power goes, I would agree that they're both powerful organizations and they abuse their power. Uh, the mafia all the time and the federal government a lot of the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, I know I'm, I'm on board with you. I do think the checks and balances thing is an important distinction. Um, Notice it's also worth pointing out two things though, that one, that's not inherent to all governments. Some governments don't have checks and balances and that's, that's, those are bad. But also, uh, I mean, if you really, I suppose if you tried to, you could possibly argue that, you know, the mafia, collectively have has a different sort of checks and balances you get out of line and uh you're gonna get checked and you're gonna get balanced yeah well that's how you retain power is by fear yeah. i mean they're, they're, nobody votes you know right. uh, except to have somebody whacked that's that's where the vote <laughs> comes in but uh, you know when that movie came out and uh, you know uh, gianni told me this and i'm a retired nypd lieutenant i've worked with an organized crime uh, we're not, but we're not talking about that today. But when this movie came out, it was a big deal. Uh, 1972 was very fresh in my mind. I mean, you guys are younger than us, but uh, the organized crime families in New York started to believe the hype. Uh, Johnny, you, you can you can allow. They still they still believe in the hype. I mean, we've seen the change. Well, you know, I'm I'm 80 years old, and uh, I watched the transition. I come from the neighborhood to begin with. Uh, Mulberry Street, and just the impressions of the motion picture dons, they all started changing the way they dressed. One particular guy, John Gotti, he's dead now, but he only wore sweatsuits up until he saw Sonny in them. Now he's got these custom-made shirts and collars, and I saw the transitions, and it was almost laughable how they changed their own demeanor from a movie. <laughs> do you think it's still the same? Do they do they try to pass themselves off as men of honor? Well, no, that's exactly what they were doing because they saw they saw the, the recognition from the movie. They wanted to be these guys. They didn't want to be the punks they were from Howard Beach and all that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, that's my only my opinion, but I mean, I was there so I saw it. I mean, I was laughable at the time. Because I, I was at the Ravenite almost every Sunday morning because I lived around the corner and I was very good friends with Carlo and my and my uncle and him were very close. And O'Neill De La Croca was like my rabbi. But to, you know, to be around these guys and watch the transition was almost laughable. Like they were getting ready to go to a Halloween party and putting the costumes on. You know, you guys have a chapter on uh, organized crime and the American dream. And there's a lot of corollaries there. Uh, you want to talk about that a little, Richard? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I mean, it, the the backstory that you get into, right, of, of Vito coming to America, um, is precisely that, right? It's it's a story about the American dream, um, and you know, the person goes from this immigrant that's sort of on his own to somebody very wealthy and powerful, and that allure carries through, you know, all three movies. Yep. Um, you know, it's, I mean, the, the coda in the end, you know, you have, um, uh, Michael there, you know, as wealthy as all get out, um, wanting to buy into the Vatican and, and vice versa, right. And to sort of become 
you know, this captain of industry on the level of billionaires, although at the, the time they were they were probably you know, hundreds of millionaires and so. So the interesting thing about that pointing that out, that's still the lure of getting involved. <laughs> yeah. They it, feel, it, you know, their crimes, they could legitimize them. The money they raised illegitimately, they put into legitimate businesses, and they do raise a rise to that level. I mean, you're talking to a guy that got involved with the Vatican for 16 years, and uh, it was long before Mario Puzo's script. I was watching the dollars flow just from Vegas to the Vatican, so there was a lot of opportunities that even myself as an individual, I wouldn't have had. And I'm still, you know, living by those glories, fortunately. You know, that brings us to the to, to the present time. Uh, the, the movie is historical, takes place in a certain time, a certain place. But young men who choose to get involved in what we call the life, it's a choice. But what they see, they, they're, they're being pulled in from two different uh, areas. One, they see what's going on in the neighborhood. I grew up in the same neighborhood as Gianni did. I think we lived across the street from each other. Uh, uh, as, a, as a young guy who doesn't like school, I mean, what young men, there are you know, young people who like school, but not in that neighborhood. I mean, you, you're forced to go when you become 16, you're gone. Uh, but you see these guys with expensive cars, beautiful women, uh, rolls of cash that'll choke a horse. And they aspire to that because they think that's their only way out. The only way they're going to get out of the neighborhood, the only way they're going to make money. And then there's the uh, the other draw is their nuclear family. Now, Johnny and I discuss this often because we still don't understand it. How can uh, an elder in the family, someone's father, go along with having their sons go into that life? Uh, we we could never understand it. There are there there are powerful mafia figures who don't want that, but there are more I think that do want that. What do you think, Johnny? Oh yeah, they want the legacy to carry their name. That's I mean that's why these. I mean the hook is first of all the honor to have their honor. They they recognize it as an honor to have a family named after them. <laughs> I mean yeah. that's a big burden for the young. Gambinos or the young Columbos and all these people, because now they want to be part of that, uh, you know, that higher hierarchy, whatever it is. And uh, that's another law because it's like almost being recognized in, in royalty in their minds. And that's, I mean, uh, but you've seen, uh, you, sorry, oh, you've seen what, what I've seen. Even the, uh, uh, the, the men, and it's, it's, it's a male oriented organization. The uh, on on the lower end of the ladder, the the the, the, the soldiers, even the captains, uh, limited with with power, uh, take their sons into this, and they all know how it ends. They all know what's what the result is going to be of that. You're going to wind up in jail, or you're going to wind up dead, and you're surely going to wind up broke. Your wife is going to divorce you. I mean, uh, who would do something like that? I mean, that's. Uh, uh, and, and these aren't disenfranchised kids. You know, some of them come from a lot of wealth due to their father's involvement in organized crime. And that's that's something somebody should write a book about because I certainly can't figure it out why somebody would do. And they're proud of it. They're proud of their sons following in their footsteps, and it's odd. 
And again, you know, me, me. interesting, uh, you know, about the, the Godfather is Vito didn't want that for Michael, right? So right. very explicitly. Right. But seemingly did want it for Sonny. And I'm not sure what he thought of, of Fredo and, and the adopted son Tom, other than maybe that's the best Fredo can do, right? He, he, he clearly saw Tom as, you know, a valuable conciliatory. Um, one of the chapters in the book explores this this idea. You know, you were saying that it seems like there's something kind of inevitable about you know people going into this life, and the the topic of this particular chapter is you know could Michael um, have done differently, right? It could could his life have gone differently? Vito wanted it to go differently, and Michael wanted it to go differently, right? He, he comes back from the war and he's um, not interested in joining the family business. And yet events transpire, um, you know, Vito is shot, and suddenly Michael has to act. And I, I think the payoff of that is that there's this, you know, family connection. They, you know, he's the one that, that can can save the family at that time. Sonny's a hothead, Fredo's right. competent. Um, you know, Tom's just not, you know, an action guy, right? Again, he's a lawyer. Um, and it's as if Michael had no choice. And there may be something about just being in the, the the gravitational pull of certain ways of life that that you know make it hard for those that that are around the people in it not to be in it as well. Um, my my son's just graduated from high school. I'm terrified that he's going to become an academic. Um, oh my god! <laughs> my wife is. I am. You know, all our friends are. It's looking bad for him. I you know. Um, but you know, there's something to that. That you know, he's, you know, he's got a lifetime of being made interested in the same things that that we're interested in. Well, it's it's just it's just you know, same sort of thing with uh, with me. I, I I rose fairly high in, in in the NYPD. The last thing I ever wanted was for my sons to even think about a law enforcement career, and that's one of the reasons I uh, I no longer live in New York. I'm in a small town in Western Pennsylvania to get get them away from that influence. Uh, an influence of law enforcement and an influence of the street, you know, two things. Uh, but uh, what about uh, the the the, uh, the chapter on religion and family values? Richard, you want to take over? Yeah, sorry. So the chapter, which chapter? Religion and family values. Oh, um, yeah, I, I'm not uh, sure. Uh, uh, Richard, could you hold on a second while you gather your thoughts on that? I think it's time, Johnny. Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We got to make some money. And remember, we know where you live. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. I'm happy to say Hollywood Godfather, Robography, is now playing on most platforms. Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music. Listen to Joel Ortiz, famous rapper and Arsenic the Heat record. Multi-platinum producer for Sony. Produced this record. I'm proud of it. There's 12 tracks. You gotta listen to this. You never know who you're lying in a room with. So I broke a broomstick in half and let it groove with the concrete in the bathroom floor. It had a new tip stashed it behind a toilet in case I ever had to use it. All right, we're back, please. Okay, Richard, take it away. Yeah, so religion and, and family values. I had to sort of refresh my memory um, during the break. Um, but yeah, so, you know, this family kind of underwrites all of this, right? They, as we mentioned earlier, 
a lot of the chapters are, you know, what sort of person is Michael? What sort of person is Vito? Are, you know, people that had mafia families just the argument for them being virtuous persons, right? I mean, it's, it's complicated, right? I mean, I think what people wanted to think about mobsters prior to Puzo's book is, you know, very black and white. The cops are the good guys. The, the mobsters are the bad guys. And the, and the, the grounding for their virtue lies in, one, their religious beliefs, I think, to a lesser extent, and more so to their family relations and their, their family roles. Right. Um, one of the chapters addresses the question of, you know, what motivates action is, you know, how do we how do we individuate what someone's doing when they're acting? Um, so, you know, a, a mob boss orders a hit. If I tell the story that way, it looks like a, a bad action. If I say, um, you know, they're providing for their family or, you know, veto um, into taking out. I'm, I'm gapping on the name of the the Don that. He replaced was a Barzini. Um, anyway, yeah, right? Yeah, you know. Um, well, that's that's protecting his friends and his family, right? His family unit. Suddenly, that seems like a moral act. Right? Well, I think you know. In, you point, you pointed out something too with Michael when Michael made the decision to take out McCluskey and take out you know, uh, Salazzo. The audience. Thought obviously they portrayed McCluskey as a bad cop. Take him out. Salazzo was a drug dealer. Let's take him out. So it, it basically, I mean, it's so funny because you know now that I'm reflecting on it, it it's a, a lot of my life. I kill two of those type of people, and <laughs> it's, it's in real life. So, but it actually, but let's, let's preface that with justifiable homicide well, justified they were all justifiable homicide but they were drug dealers and all that but the thing is that even when i did it as a real person and i was in my 20s and 30s people glorified me for doing came up to me and thanked me so yeah, could, you know, could really warp your brain if you don't know how to control it yeah for uh, somebody else tomorrow just to uh to, to tell our guest the first shooting Johnny was involved in in, in his club, he killed a uh, killed somebody in his club. That wound up on Entertainment Tonight. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, uh, people have a strange fascination with things, right? So oh like, my god! Well, you oh. know, it's funny you should say it because it, it happened in my club, and when they came in, when they removed the body, they put the body tape down. We kept it down for like a month. People wanted to get tables to sit next to it, take pictures with it. And we said, this is nuts. It's a, but it's a fascination that, you know, it can, can really warp your thoughts of uh, what's really justified and what's not. And, and, you know, when you watch the movie, uh, particularly during the baptism uh, uh, segment where uh, uh, Michael's in church and uh, Clemenza and the rest of the crew are going out killing people, and, and I've seen this in real life. Uh, most organized crime figures, from the lowest to the highest, are very religious. Oh my God! Yeah. Are they trying to get a pass? I mean, what what's the uh, philosophical thought behind that? Why, why do they also very patriotic? May I add? Uh, back in the day, I, I, I can't speak for now. But I retired in 1988, but uh, uh, they were they only bought American cars. They wouldn't buy a foreign car. 
So what's the philosophy? What's the thought behind that? I imagine that like the, it's almost you have to go to like the psychologist to, to really get a good answer about that. You know, people, uh, I think whether or not you're an organized crime or whoever you are, you do need something like a purpose. You, uh, you want to make the world a better place. You value. And yeah, you, you got to justify it in your own mind. That's what it right, is. Right. Yeah. And if you and if you spend your time doing things that uh, you think are less than virtuous or less than um, praiseworthy, you're going to focus your attention as much as you can on um, things that you think that do have value, that do uh, have meaning and purpose, um, to sort of make sense of everything and to bring a value and a purpose to your own life. Well, you, your, your chapter on private justice and uh, vigilantism, uh, I, I think this is how uh, uh, the average American views the, the mob in certain aspects, where they take, they want to right a wrong, whether it's right or wrong to begin with. They want to right a wrong, and they're going to do it, and that turns them into folk heroes. Uh, and people who watch The Godfather think that entire film is exactly the way organized crime families work. And of course, it's drama. Uh, you know, it's, it, of course, some organized crime figures in real life actually believed it and started playing the role. But I think that's how they get away with uh, a, a lot of the adulation and the uh, the Robin Hood type of uh, reputations that they get. Was that What was that chapter about, private justice versus vigilantism? So normally it's thought that, that, you know, there's this sort of distinction between personal and impersonal morality, right? They, you know, to put it in Godfather terms, you know, it's not personal, it's business. No, it's not business, it's personal, right? So what what is the distinction? What are the two realms? And you have Vito and Michael sort of at, at odds, right? Or Tom representing Vito saying, it's not personal, it's just business. And Michael um, subsequently saying it's not business, it's it's always personal, right? And so we're we're governed by different rules of morality, at least on some people's view, um, depending on whether something is sort of detached or impartial, right? And going back to the earlier question, to the extent that this gets tied up with family, religious practice, traditions, way of life, Italian Americans banding together and in this particular example, in this community and these community standards and, you know, and a connection to, you know, a, a way of life in Sicily, all of that, um, what's morally expected um, can change very drastically, right? I mean, this is why it, I think a lot of the chapters end up exploring things like loyalty and betrayal, right, which is, you know, big themes throughout The Godfather. Um, it's because the, the circumstances of those personal relationships put Loyalty, loyalty at the forefront right. is is you know as cardinal a sin as there is. Um, so I think you know when you when you talk about you know the the, the personal and the impersonal in ethics, um, you know where you place something you know like the actions of, of Vito or Michael um, will sort of bear greatly on on the assessment, right? Michael Michael views it one way, Vito views it another. Julia, how are you assessing all this? Um, I always ask these questions, sir, because we, you know, we have them for that reason. Because uh, we have, fortunately, we have a, a, a mass audience of our age bracket, and I know that just from walking down the streets, they approach me. So, with with you digesting this, at, yeah, at, at, at the spur of the moment, 
What's your overview of what you just heard so far? Well, I do have a question having, um, you know, heard you guys speak about some of the ways in which the movies and the books impacted, say, the viewers and the mobs 50 years ago. And um, I was just wondering, do you think that the movies and the books are still having as profound impacts on the younger generation nowadays as, say, when the books and movies came out? Or is there like a difference in the way that they're impacting them or anything like that? Josh, you're a lot younger than I am. <laughs> well, a lot, but you know, uh, so I teach a lot of, uh, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds. And to be honest, I, you know, it's kind of getting pulling teeth to get them to watch anything that's, you know, prior to like 2005. You know, um, when I, the first, I watched The Godfather probably when I was like in my mid twenties for the first time. And it just put me in this trance of like, you know, it's a, it's a, has a little bit of a slower pace, but it's just so absorbing. And I think the younger folks, it's harder to get them to, you know, put down their phone, sit back for two and a half, three hours. Um, but the ones who do venture into it, they do, they get it. They see, um, you know, this older way of doing things, uh, the values that are espoused, and um, it does have a, uh, a profound impact on them. But unfortunately, it's a it's a smaller minority of, of younger people, I think. Mm, yeah, because I was wondering, especially because like with the topic of like religion that you guys were talking about before, like obviously in the past, um, you know, even decade or so, apparently like religion is on the decline. And I was wondering whether that is still from anyone's point of view, um, a large part of like the mob values nowadays, or whether it's also declined in that area as well. I, yeah, since um, Josh appealed to the students, I can maybe do the same. Um, I live in a, a very religious state, right? I'm, I'm in Utah. And, uh, you know, over the last um, few decades, I've seen students become increasingly less religious. They're, yeah, they're, they're, leaving the churches in droves. Um, and to that extent, when you use examples from pop culture, which is you know, a great way to teach philosophy, you know, Plato used examples from pop culture to teach all, you know, his pop culture was Greek mythology. You know, it, it, it tends to resonate well. Um, appeals to these kinds of traditions don't, I think, resonate with the current students um, like they might have 20 years ago. And in part, I think because they are they are less religious. Um, part of it is, I think, you know, Josh said that they don't watch stuff, you know, that's you know more than fifteen or twenty years old, and I think that's true. Um, part of it is because their entertainment is TikTok, podcasts, and YouTube, right? So they're 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 getting entertainment, but they're getting it from very different sources. And their uh, concentration span is so small. I mean, I I have kids from sixty three down to four years old. But I mean, that's 37 different varieties, but I've been witnessing it. They they don't want to think about anything. They want it now and forget about it. Well, a lot of it, I think, has to, has to do with uh, today's youth. And I'm, I'm not coming at this from, you know, I'm an old guy and you, you people don't know anything. It's just observation that uh, uh, people under a certain age tend to be more self-absorbed than than they used to be. Uh, one of the uh, uh, givens as a police officer, if there was a crime committed and you had a teenager as a witness, might as well not have a witness at all. And an eyewitness uh, I'm talking about. I, 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 first of all, eyewitness testimony is the worst testimony you can have. 
and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, particularly among people of a certain age, they're just too involved with themselves. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's getting any better. And as far as time goes, uh, there's a lot of instant gratification. If, if you're, and I, I, I saw it when my own sons were, were growing up, if they're downloading a video and this thing doesn't download in five seconds, they're moving on. And uh, I, I think it's just the way everything is going. You know, to philosophize, to get somebody young now to go back to 1972 or the movie, you know, to, to go back when it took place, which was the end of the Second World War, and to get something out of it uh, in that age group, I think would be rare unless they're, they're assigned to do it. I mean, I, I taught organized crime in the local university and I assigned that movie to people. Uh, first of all, I asked, you know, who hasn't, who hasn't seen The Godfather? I say about 80% that the hands would go up and I'd come out with, a, and you call yourself Americans, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. Everybody has a giggle, but th they wind up uh, watching the movie and I, I ask uh, questions of a deep nature. Not uh, why did Michael marry the Italian woman when Kay looks Kay is prettier, ridiculous stuff like that. I, I wanted them to philosophize and get into it, and it was just a class assignment. After the class is over, they're gone. And like you say, uh, if it's not a, a a a movie made by Pixar or D or DC with with a lot of special effects, it's hard to keep them in in the moment. And it's not just The Godfather. I've yeah. been stunned over the past couple of years. I took a survey a couple of times even like the original star Wars trilogy, like growing up, like a, like a, a bunch of kids who hadn't seen that was unthinkable. And yeah, I have students now, a good number of students now who's like, yeah, I've never seen that. And I think they, they, they're just flooded. Like you said, with TikTok and YouTube and things that last five minutes, if you know, if that, and well, you have to lose yourself in the story. And, and right. when you talk about the, uh, the, the, you know, star Wars movie after movie after movie, and they're all related. Right. So you have to know what's going on by seeing the first one on forward. And that just doesn't see people are too rushed. And I think there's has to be if there isn't already a psychological detrimental psychological effect on people that age. It just isn't normal. You know, staying home and watching something rather than going out and intermingling. But, we, you know, we're getting off the subject. Here. <laughs> uh, uh, so, Julia, with with your, with your answers, did you hear anything different from these professors of uh, the Godfather? Had you first of all, did, have you ever seen the Godfather? Yes, yes. Oh, well, okay. the first one. I still we should one. clarify that first. And I only watched Star Wars. I yeah. think a year ago. Okay, so, there you go. I haven't we gotta watch the second. Uh, one. You haven't seen the second Godfather? No, I haven't. I know I'm horrible. <laughs> But, you know, Johnny wasn't, you know, so I was just sure. like, oh, I've watched the important one. <laughs> I always didn't go. Oh, she's in the, you know, he's in the same, yeah, at the very end, yeah. Yeah, I'll see. There we go. Uh, okay. The, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't know the, I don't know if this is the last chapter or, or, or near the end, but you have a chapter on the difficulties of breaking out of a dysfunctional way of life. I'd be interested to know what that chapter was about, breaking away, because there, you, there's no real breaking away. Well, it go, yeah, it goes back to your question, like, how can people um, allow their kids to get into organized crime? I think it's I think it's similar to like, I think there's an analogy to like a gambler at the table who's up a whole bunch of money. It's just there's something captivating about just a little bit more, just a little bit oh, more, yeah. and then I'll cash out, right? Yeah. And the gambler gets into trouble and eventually he gives all his money back to the casino 
and you know, um, first Vito and then Michael. I just, you know, I'm eventually the Corleone family is going to be completely legitimate, Kay. And it's just a little bit more, a little bit more, and they can't quite cash out. And, um, you know, that it's a very extreme example in The Godfather with the Corleones, but to probably a certain extent, a lot of us have experienced that, whether it be a toxic relationship or um, some other sort of moral compromise that we've made, we think. Well, it's the power, too. They were enjoying right. the power. They don't want to sit back. They don't want right. to, you know. I, not, I mean, I, again, I've had the privilege of the, the monsters of the business, and yet the gentleman, that because Frank Costello was my mentor until he died, until 73. But, you know, there was there was also the, you know, the Joe Gallows and these other people. But when you segregate even mafia people, there's such a different variety of moral standards against the, the maniacs. It's like it, it can be confusing in any walk of life that you experience when you start to reflect on theirs. But it's the gratification and the money. You know, and you talk about moral standards. It was always believed that the mob didn't get involved in drugs because drugs are bad. And people still think that everybody, I can't say everybody, but the majority of people have seen The Godfather. And if there's any honesty in that movie, it's when uh, Vito uh, uh, stands up to Salazzo and says, if we get involved with drugs, we're going to lose the judges, we're going to lose the uh, the media, we're going to, we're going to lose the, 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 the police. Uh, and that's why we don't get involved. Uh, they hadn't had uh, RICO laws back then, where if you get involved, you get a heavy prison sentence and you flip on everybody else. But people still believe. And I, you know, I, I live in, uh, you know, white middle America here. And, uh, you know, everybody knows what I did for a living for, for many years. And every now and then somebody will ask me a question about organized crime, because that's what I did uh, when I was on a job. But uh, but I explained to them, no, it's, they don't do it out of altruistic purposes. It's, it's, it's no moral decision. They don't want to go to jail for life, <laughs> but that doesn't mean it isn't done. The bosses turn a blind eye just as long as you bring the money in. Yeah, and, and in fact, when Vito finally assents to that, right, it's because he has to bring Michael or he wants to bring Michael back, right? He's, exactly. You know, you know, it's 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 not a oh, what the heck? The money will be good. We'll we'll make it work. It's family. I I need Michael back from Sicily. Fine, you do what you do. We won't. We won't interfere. And there's just like a corrupting nature of, you know, dipping your toe into waters that you should dip, dip your toe into. You know, you, you, you do one bad thing. It's easier to do a second bad thing. You do a third, it's two bad things, easier to do a third. Um, you know, you start, you know, we'll just run a gambling ring. Well, then it's easier to, to talk yourself into getting into prostitution. It might be easier to get, talk yourself into, um, you know, running drugs. And there's just a, a corrupting, um, uh, force to doing a lot of these things, both on a grand scale, like uh, organized crime, or even just somebody's personal life. That's one reason why you don't do those things. It will literally change you in a way that you, that's not good for you. Right? Even, even an organized crime, you know, you, you talk about once you, once you do a crime, it's always easier the second time. And you, you can, you can understand that, but uh, what the, a lot of people don't understand is difficult to understand is killing the constant killing versus the, religion and the alleged family values. And I mean, I've spoken to these guys, some of them have been under arrest, some of them you just talk over a couple of drinks, of course, they don't admit to anything. But the basic philosophy is, uh, it, it becomes easier to kill somebody once you've done it once. And then twice, of course, it gets easier than that. 
And after a while, it's just a day at the office. Well, you know, I, I again, it's a situation where they, they justify it because they know that this guy's a bad person. So it's okay that I do this. You know, and that's how I basically was able to digest what I did in, in different ways, like you pointed out, it was all justifiable. But hmm. I can understand how people would say, I may do it because the guy's bad. And and for all the wrong reasons, but or or within the construct of the family, which is everything and organized crime in, in, in the mafia, within the construct of the family, if somebody is trying to do harm to that family and, and you're giving an order, you know, the that the concept of hiring a hitman, that's that's a fable. You, you don't get paid. You have, somebody tells you about kill somebody, you do it, but you can always justify it by saying, Well, they're trying to harm the family. And mm -hmm. they uh, they, they they can have peace with themselves by doing it. Yeah. You know, here, if I hadn't done it, somebody else would have, right? There you go. Exactly. So then, you know, is it negligible? That's the, <clears throat> the thought. Um, well, uh, go back to one earlier point. Um, so you were asking about, you know, it's hard to get out and, you know, and the corruption and all that that goes with it. There's a, a further thing I think that gets explored nicely in the coda. Um, I really like the, the the coda. I think more than the most fans, um, although I don't like it more than one and two. And that's external factors, right? So you know, there's Michael in a position to actually really go legit, or at least you know, from his perspective, he could, um, and under the right circumstances, was willing to. Um, but yet the world didn't see him that way, right? So in the end. The, the, you know, the conspiracy theory within the church um, takes advantage of his desire to go legit. So you, you can get to certain points in life where, you know, if you have a certain kind of reputation, no matter how much you want to get out of your circumstance, I mean, um, the world may not let you. No, no. And, 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 the, and the tragedy of that, it would show weakness and you wouldn't last another day on the street. Yeah. Because people take advantage of it, obviously. Okay, well, gentlemen, this has been very enlightening. This is not our usual show, and we uh, we, we thank you for coming on. Could you tell us, uh, uh, either Richard or Josh, one more time about your book, where it's available, when it's coming out, etc.? Yeah, um, The Godfather and Philosophy, an argument you can't refute. Uh, it's out July 25th, but it is currently available for pre-order. Uh, at all the normal places like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, um, 28, 29 uh, essays about all things Godfather, um, philosophy related. Um, yeah, it'd be, it's a good time. Okay, thank you. I uh, can't thank you enough for uh, really both of you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It's wonderful. I mean, after 52 years, you can imagine the impact it's having on me. I'm, as you're <laughs> telling me the title of the book, I'm, I think I should buy everyone. Every one of my grandchildren, this book, so they yeah, can understand what, what I was doing in that movie. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Jane. With all the grandchildren you have, it's the bestseller if you do do that. <laughs> hey, well, we all fully right. endorse you purchasing <laughs> copies for all of your family members. Yeah. Oh, there you go. But yeah. thank okay. you so much. Thank no. you. So long, fellas. Bye bye. Thanks so much. Please. Well, my darling, we have to end the show with you always because you are the eyes and ears of our new following what did you think of this show 
Very, well, very different from all of the other ones that I've been on as well. And I think hearing, you know, um, a philosophical sort of view on all of this has been very, very interesting. I did basic, basic, basic philosophy in school, I think in the first year of business degree for some reason. And I think just being able to actually understand what they were saying and some of the points that I'd previously learned in school on a broader basis, it was it was very, very interesting. Does it give you a better understanding of the way these people think? Yes. Yeah, that, <laughs> uh, I thought so too. And I, I've been on the peripheral of this life for most of my life. Uh, and I've been teaching about it. But, you know, to get into their heads, you, you understand. You have to feel sorry for them or feel good for them. But just to understand why they do what they do. Yeah. And once they're doing it, it's hard not to do it. Yeah. And it's when you base it around family, it's like you would do anything for your family. And that's what, you know, these people, I guess, at the end of the day are doing. Exactly. By everything. So, so uh, Gianni, is there anything you want to tell our audience about the appearances or anything? Not right now. Just your newsletter is great. I mean, I have, thank God I've been so blessed. I got 18 appearances the month of July. <laughs> it's craziness. Good for you, Mike. I'm, I'm the hardest working 80-year-old guy in the business. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you all. Julia, always a pleasure. Pat, love you. And we'll see you next week. God bless you. And that was that. But I'll be back. Thank you for tuning no in to the no Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact no Gianni Russo or Patrick Picciarelli with your questions and comments through the contact the section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob in Hollywood as well as answers to your questions. My kids still can't believe I sat with a saint. My life's like scenes out of a movie. I'm the Hollywood Godfather, truly. I got stories with them all. You know, celebrities, world leaders, icons. Who knows what's next for me? I'll never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back until next time. And that was that.